Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss economic policy is Cecilia Rouse. Cecilia is the Dean of Princeton University School for Public and International Affairs. She has served as a Princeton faculty member since earning her PhD in economics from Harvard University. She has previously served on President Obama's Council for Economic Advisors from 2009 to 2011 and President Clinton's National Economic Council from 1998 to 1999. Welcome to the show, Cece. Thank you for having me. The economy alongside healthcare seems to be at the top of everyone's mind going into the 2020 presidential election. Our economy is in a downward spiral. Approximately 20% of the workforce is receiving unemployment benefits as of today, and the U.S. GDP fell 32.9%. How exactly did we get to this point? This is not a typical economic crisis. We got to this point because we are in the middle of a pandemic. This is a pandemic in which we have a virus which is extremely contagious and in which the healthcare experts said the way that we get through this without having innumerable, uncalculable death and suffering is by not having people in close contact, which means we needed people to stay home Quarantine where necessary, self-isolate if necessary, but importantly, not being in close quarters, which meant we basically needed to shut down the economy for a period of time to bring the virus under control. Pre-COVID, before really March, a little bit of uh, February, um, our economy seemed to be performing reasonably well. Now with this downturn, do you think we're seeing structural weaknesses coming to the forefront or can we simply attribute the downturn to a COVID-19 quote unquote induced coma? Our economy was doing reasonably well before the pandemic hit and before we put the economy into an induced coma. But there's no question that this downturn has exacerbated the economic inequality that existed beforehand and which did lay bare many of the inequalities that exist in our society. For example, on the health side, we are seeing that the COVID-19 has a disproportionate impact in low-income communities that are disproportionately affecting individuals of color. That is, again, that's as a result of our income inequality and the fact that in low-income neighborhoods, We don't have the safety support there. They don't have the health infrastructure. They don't have uh, a lot of the means that they need in order to be safe and healthy during this pandemic. In addition, we had income inequality before this existed as well. And so some people, for example, a high percentage of individuals had multiple jobs in order to just get by. If we look at what the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage in this country is, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Now, some states, it's higher. And if so, if somebody worked 40 hours a week, they're only taking home $290 a week. And that is very difficult to get by on just you know, less than $300 a week for a family. So many workers had multiple jobs. And then with the downturn, when those jobs went away, they may even have kept one job, but they don't have enough in order to support their families. At the same time, we had many jobs which were deemed essential. And you don't see my air quotes because it's a podcast. But many of these essential jobs were some of these low-wage jobs. So these are the people who are helping those of us that can afford to stay home nonetheless get food delivery, have meals delivered, have packages delivered so that we can still get the goods that we still need in order to continue living and and getting through this pandemic. So the, the pandemic is laying bare the fact that we don't have a secure safety net for many workers because we tie much of our safety net to employment. So when they didn't have jobs, they didn't have them. 
they didn't have the safety net, or they had the type of jobs that don't provide the safety net. And so it's laying bare those kinds of inequalities as well as the health inequalities. And so, yes, our country economically and somewhat socially is coming apart. So some of the policy decisions that were put in place by the Congress uh, were meant to provide a remedy for some of some of the economic problems and some of the economic fallout from COVID. I'm thinking of the Paycheck Protection Program, the $1,200 payments to everyone who qualified, the $600 supplement to unemployment insurance. Could you talk about some of those policies and which ones you think were more successful than others, and which you think should be continued if the Congress can come to an agreement. We're, we're recording this in August, so right now the Congress is debating sort of what the next step of policy remedies are. Congress acted very quickly, and I think that was admirable and, and appropriate. So Congress acted very quickly to provide the kind of economic assistance that individuals would need when they weren't able to go to work. So just because we've asked everybody to stay home to keep the pandemic under control, they nonetheless still need to eat, they still need to pay rent, uh, they still need to provide for their children. And so the government needed to provide that kind of financial assistance because they couldn't get it through their employment. The one aspect, one tranche of this assistance was through uh, these, this $1,200 check, which was just almost like a helicopter drop of money for families that were earning below, I think, $60,000, um, $90,000 if you were a couple. And so that was meant to say, we know you can't work, but we know that you have bills and you need to continue to survive and provide for your family. They also, as the federal government does during times of recession, meaning times when there's not economic activity, they stepped in to supplement the state unemployment assistance programs. So typically with unemployment insurance, when somebody loses their job, they're eligible for 26 weeks. Typically in a recession, Congress will extend the number of weeks somebody is eligible. So in this case, uh, Congress extended from the federal government, not from the states, an extra 13 weeks. In addition, they recognized that the replacement rate is typically only 40 to 45 percent of what an individual would earn in their typical job while they're on unemployment insurance. So if I would typically earn $1,000 a week, unemployment would pay only between $400 and $450. Congress said, we want to make sure people get the full replacement. So they added a $600 on top of that. All of this was in the spirit of we want individuals and families to be able to take care of themselves and their families when they cannot go to work. Not only is that the moral and right thing to do because people still need to pay rent and they need to eat and they need to have whatever necessities they have to get by, but we also know from an economic perspective that people who are receiving unemployment insurance will then spend that money in the economy. So it's also a way to make sure that people who are still able to work and who are providing those goods and services that can still be provided during the pandemic are being demanded of so that those services and goods are being demanded, which is putting money back into the system. So it's keeping the economy going. So not only was this relief important just because it was the right thing so that people were not suffering, but it also was a way to help bolster the economy during this pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about the $600 supplement? It's, it's turned out to be somewhat of a controversial remedy in that some people, because their wages were quite low, ended up earning 
more while they were on unemployment than they were when they were in the workforce. And this has proven to be a talking point for people in Congress who don't want to continue this policy. Sure. So it, the Congress acted very quickly, and it's been it's unusual for Congress to add just a flat amount of money on top of unemployment insurance. So what that means is if you were an individual who before the pandemic was making, say, $400 a week, with this additional $600, you're suddenly earning much more than you would have had there not been the pandemic. For others, they may still be earning less than they were earning before the pandemic, but nonetheless, it's, it's, a, large, it's a large sum of money. The concern is that because there are people who now may be earning exactly what they were earning before the recession, or they may even be earning more than they were earning before the pandemic, that those individuals do not have an incentive to go back to work. This is to say that theoretically, it's possible that there are people who are saying, hey, I am doing just as well as I was before the pandemic in terms of the amount of money that's coming into the household. Why don't I stay home, spend time with the kids, spend time with the family, watch TV, do what I want to do and not have to go to work. So they think that there's a disincentive to individuals going back to work with this additional $600. That is a theoretical possibility. Economists have actually looked at this empirically, and they have not found evidence that people who are receiving the $600, for whom that $600 is more than they were making beforehand, are, are not going back to work. So one way that they've done this is they've looked at individuals in states where the $600 added a lot to, on top of unemployment insurance compared to people in states where they were the $600 isn't as big of a percentage increase. And they're not finding a difference in going back to work and in employment between those two areas. So there's not a lot of evidence that people are not working because of the $600 a supplementary payment and unemployment insurance. Rather, the problem is that they're just not jobs. If we look at the vacancy rate compared to the number of people looking for work, there are far more people looking for work than there are jobs. So the reality is, is because of the pandemic, we need for economic activity to still be quite restrained. In some places, it's coming back some, but we're not back to being completely unrestrained where we're walking around and interacting in ways like we were before the pandemic. And until we can, economic activity is restrained. And so we're not going to have as, um, as much employment as before. Clearly, a lot of this recovery is going to come from, you know, a vaccine or something that makes people feel safe to go back out into um, into society. But I guess one of my questions is, is there are there economic policies that might speed up the recovery and are there economic policies that might slow it down? It, you know, it's very hard to judge at this time what the role of, of traditional economic policy will be. Right now, we have a pandemic, which in parts of the country is out of control. Uh, we are here in New Jersey. New Jersey actually has it fairly well under control. But we have a long list of states for whom if you come from that state, you need to quarantine for two weeks. Um, our governor has not fully opened the economy. We're still rather restricted. And until we actually can see the pandemic much more under control, it's hard to really see what's going to be the right response. In the meantime, I will say, though, if the federal government does not extend some relief to individuals, to businesses, to state and local governments, there is going to be a, a downward spiral, if you will, 
in terms of contraction because if people don't have the money to spend in the economy, the economy will start to contract and that will just be bad that will feed on itself. So in the short term, the right way to, to, to ensure that we don't have a complete depression is for the federal government to continue the assistance to individuals. We didn't talk about the Paycheck Protection Program, but that has also early evidence suggests that that was relatively effective as well. Yes, there were many problems with implementation. I'm sure that when we do some accountability, there are going to be businesses that should not have received it that did. But by and large, it did the job it was supposed to do in terms of helping to protect um, many small businesses. We, the state and local governments are going to need assistance. They have balanced budget laws, and they've been spending a lot of money on first responders and in medical care. And so if the federal government doesn't step in, it will speed the recession and possibly tip us into depression. Once this pandemic is under control, there's going to be some carnage left on the field, shall we say. And that's when the question will be, well, how do we really rebuild? And I think it, it's a little hard to see, but I imagine that it would be a great time to be investing in infrastructure. Uh, those are tend to be very good paying jobs. And we know that in our country, uh, we have a lot of need for infrastructure. Uh, there's going to need to be a lot of rebuilding of our educational institutions um, and training for, for people, workers, for, say, more of a technology economy. I think the pandemic has probably sped um, our transition to even more technology. So there will certainly be a time for us to think about what is the next step. But until we get past this pandemic, really the game in town is federal relief so that people um, continue to pay their bills, which provides stimulus to the economy. Yeah, a lot of the work that you've done as an economist has focused on education policy. And so I wanted to pick that up because you mentioned that one area that could be cut is teachers. So schools are very much in the news in this pandemic as at, at both the K-12 level and higher ed as they try to figure out how to reopen safely and what reopening means, whether that means a virtual year like the last spring or whether they bring kids back into the brick and mortar buildings. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the effect of the pandemic has had on K through 12. I think this is a story that is still unfolding, but this will undoubtedly increase educational inequality as well. What we know is that students that come from families that are well-resourced have internet, they've got adequate technology, and they come from school systems where the schools could provide some measure of education online as well. The teachers were trained, they had the technology in the schools. If you look at schools that were already struggling financially, uh, not only the schools may not have had the, the digital resources to provide an education online and remotely, but a lot of the kids aren't come from families where they may not have had access to the internet or had the technology and allowing them to connect, much less the fact that for especially young kids to engage remotely from a computer, it's very difficult to do so without the presence of an adult to help guide them and help them stay on task, help them pace themselves as they try to get through the day. So they may not have had an adult who could help them because some of those adults were essential workers and couldn't be home to help their children. So we're going to see that the haves continue to have. You know, Wealthier families can not only decide that they're going to maybe not send their children to public school. The wealthier families can choose to have tutors that come in 
or they can they can afford to be working at home and to organize their work around helping their children as well. We know that this is going to exacerbate those inequalities. I, I heard one shocking statistic about the fraction of kids in some low-income schools that were actually showing up at school and, and logging online. It was it was surprisingly low. I can't remember the number, but that, you know that's also an issue. It's there is not anybody there really taking attendance and who's circling back with the parents and keeping and holding the kids accountable. The other thing that I think it's educated a lot of people about is just how many services are provided through the school, food and other assistance, especially to low-income kids. Do you want to talk about a little bit about that in terms of how these school closings have affected that and maybe affecting policy decisions going forward? Because we have schools in almost every neighborhood, we have used them as institutions to not only provide education for children, but to provide many other services. So with schools closed, children lost access to the National School Lunch Program. Um, Children who are endangered for being in homes where they may be subject to violence, we don't have teachers who are seeing them every day and who can be reporting on that the child looks to be endangered. Um, We see in terms of health services, the school nurse often is there as a first resource for kinds of services that students may need. In addition to helping the families, there are a lot of school literacy programs that happen through the local schools. So parents that are trying to learn English as a second language or who never really learned to read fluently can learn and do some adult literacy. So when our schools are closed, communities lose access to a lot of services that we think are important to provide. So in the environmental side, there's a lot of talk about building back better, taking uh, taking advantage of this opportunity, if you will, to come back and invest in greener technologies and whatnot. On the business side, is are there parallels to that? If you know, if if anything, quote unquote, good could come out of this pandemic, is there a, a way for restructuring to happen on the business side that might make our economy stronger at the end of all of this? I think it's in the eye of the beholder a bit. I personally believe that we need to build a stronger safety net for all kinds of workers. So we take independent contractors, which do not typically get health insurance to their employers. They have to get it on the private market. They do not have sick days. So if they don't work, they're not paid. They don't get disability, even retirement. And I think that we need to have a safety net for those people who are uh, who are classified as independent contractors which in our gig economy is a growing percentage of our workforce. Uh, I think we need to see in our terms of our production, if we're going to be prepared for the next pandemic or the next, next major disruption, for us to have more redundancy in our supply chains so that firms are not just reliant on one country or two countries or even uh, global relationships. And I'm not suggesting that we roll back on our, our on how global we are but we need to be smarter to recognize that stuff happens, disruptions happen. And if we have some redundancy, if we do a little bit more at home, we can be more resilient in the face of the next disruption. So I think it will be a time for us to rethink how we do things, uh, how we are sharing the resources in our country. So inequality is, in my humble opinion, unacceptably high. And I think we have to find ways to redistribute so that everybody is partaking in the growth that we are, which we hope to have, and that we are we need to be positioned so that we're prepared for the economy of the future. 
That's what the environmental groups are saying, which is in the future, we've got to be worried about climate change. So should we take this opportunity to position ourselves so that we're actually investing towards that future? So another thread I'd like to pick up on is you, you mentioned a couple of times state and local government. And again, this has become a contentious point in Congress with um, some people, mostly on the Republican side of the aisle, saying that we shouldn't be, quote unquote, bailing out the states. What are your fears if Congress can't come to an agreement about providing aid to state and local government? If the federal government can't come to an agreement on how to assist state and local governments, the big fear is that they will then cut services because they will need to balance their budgets as most states are required to do uh, by their state constitution. So they'll balance their budgets by cutting services They can also balance their budgets by increasing taxes. Both increasing taxes and cutting services, which really means cutting jobs, are going to help contract the economy even further. So neither of the solutions that states will have in their toolbox for addressing state budgets will help uh, dig us out of this recession. So what I'm concerned is it will make the recession that much Take, take that much longer, make it go that much deeper. All the while, cutting back essential services that people need. So this is in terms of our, in our elementary and secondary schools, whether it's first responders, whether um, it's health in terms of Medicaid and um, other health services that state and local governments provide. You, you've served in the Council of Economic Advisors um, and did so during another very turbulent period in American history, the Great Recession. I wondered if there are any parallels to that time to now, or if this is just so different because it came about from a pandemic versus a fragile economic um, system. I think there are a few parallels between this economic downturn and the Great Recession, but there are many differences. Starting with the differences, which is that in 2008, we had a recession that was caused by a problem in our financial market. And so it was a it was an economic recession that was stoked from an economic problem and where there was a part of the private economy that wasn't functioning. So we needed to address that and Congress did. But, and while we also supported workers and helped them train for other parts of the economy, et cetera. So that was an economic cause that needed an economic solution. This recession was not caused by a problem in the economy writ large. Yes, we have a problem with inequality, but writ large, the economy was, was humming along. On the other hand, because of the pandemic, we had to bring things to a halt. That means that fundamentally, the way out of this reception is by dealing with the pandemic. So we have to respect the pandemic. It's a virus that we can't control. It doesn't respond to us. We have to work around the the virus, which means we had to shut down and we will need to be socially distancing. We'll have to have muted economic activity until we all feel confident that we're not gonna get sick by being in close contact with one another. That's a fundamental difference because we can't just stimulate our way out of this recession. One of the things that's that's common, though, is that when a part of the economy can't function, another part of the economy has to step up. So in both cases, the private sector was hurt, and, and so the public sector needed to step in. So that was true in the Great Recession for not as long. That's true today, and I fear for much longer because this virus is really uh, fairly wily, and we're not all respecting that we need to 
just shut it down before we can build it back up. So I would say that's the fundamental difference. It both required federal assistance. This will be a much longer, much bigger. And the fact that we can't fix our way out of it by rebuilding back the economy in some way. This is about fixing it by developing an effective set of vaccines and therapeutics. In line with the name of this podcast, Before the Ballot, if I'm a voter for whom the economy is the most important issue, what do I have to think about when I walk into the ballot box and vote? Well, if you're a voter that focuses on the economy, then what I would urge you to do is to think about the candidate's approach to policy during the pandemic, but importantly, what they're thinking about even for the medium term when we are starting to come back, when maybe there are one or two vaccines available, people are starting to trust them and to take them. How are they thinking about positioning the U.S. for the the new economy that will emerge after this in terms of their investments in different sectors, how they're going to help workers, and importantly, how they're thinking about positioning the U.S. to really flourish once we get around the corner of this pandemic so that we emerge a much stronger, healthier economy. Uh, So thank you, Cece, so much for being on the show. I learned a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.